Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the Future of Higher Education. I'm David Feingold, your host, and I'm here today with Rick Miller, the founding president of Olin College of Engineering. Rick, uh, great to be speaking with you. I was hoping you might start by telling us about uh, just where the the project of creating Olin was when the foundation hired you. So which things had already been decided and which were still to be determined by you and the founding team? Sure. Very good question, David. Uh, The foundation had been thinking about creating this school for about four years before I showed up on the scene. Um, They were were responding, actually, to a great deal of unhappiness about the way engineers were prepared in the country. Um, They were considering alternatives. It was actually a very difficult decision for them to decide to spend almost $500 million to start over. It's a lot of risk there for a foundation that had 50 years of success in creating buildings, um, there is no no guarantee that starting with a blank sheet of paper will, will make it. So there was a lot of hand-wringing within the foundation. When I showed up in 1999, I was the first employee. Um, before then, the, in fact, on that day, the, the college consisted of five people, the four directors of the Olin Foundation and me. Um, by the way, none of them is an engineer. And none of them has ever worked in higher education. Um, well, what can go wrong with that, right? Um, <laughs> and, and also, I learned, you know, pretty simply, no one writes a check for five hundred million dollars without having very strong ideas about what they want. So there's a lot to do. Now they had done some preliminary work. You have to to get this done. Uh, they had interviewed dozens of university presidents about the need for change. Uh, and were quite astute in their observations. They had been doing this every year in, in their grants program. Uh, so they were very well informed. They had talked to key people, including a fellow named Joe Bordonia, who was at that point the chief operating officer of the National Science Foundation. Uh, Joe was formerly, I believe, the dean of engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, Joe, Joe is a is a is retired now, but he was an amazing leader. He uh, led the program at the National Science Foundation on what's called the Engineering Education Coalitions Program in the 1990s, which was designed to try to create systemic change in engineering education by getting groups of universities to work together. Um, It didn't work out as well as they had hoped, and they abandoned the program. So he had a lot of experience that he shared with the foundation. Another one was um, John Prados, John was the um, vice president for academic affairs at the University of Tennessee system. Um, At the time they talked to him, I believe he was the president of the accreditation board for engineering and technology with a lot of experience. So a lot of good advice and great people on their team. They had also uh, gotten a charter to start the school uh, from a blank sheet of paper in the school. It's a legal issue. Uh, 
legal and financial, which is pretty complicated. Um, turns out it's, it's in many ways, it's a catch 22. And I heard a lot about this from them. Um, he, you know, so people don't create new universities very often. That's the bottom line. So in this, you know, highly simplified explanation, here's what they did. You, you went to the um, state government in Boston, in Massachusetts, and you asked them, how do we start a nonprofit uh, corporation in Massachusetts? They said, well, fill out this form over here. Okay. Oh, by the way, we want it to be a, a college too. Oh, in that case, then you should go to this other office for you know, the Board of Higher Education to fill out their form too. Well, the form for the Board of Higher Education says, oh, you want to be recognized as a college? Well, then you need to describe for us um, what, are the, what are the qualifications of your faculty? And uh, where did you find your students? And what happened to the last few graduating classes? And what's your curriculum look like? And they said, look, if we knew all that, we wouldn't be starting a school, you know? Uh, and, and so in that sense, it's a kind of catch-22. Um, they were really fortunate, and I can't remember the fellow's name, who happened to be the chair of the Board of Higher Education in Massachusetts at that time. Um, and he essentially twisted the arms of the committee to be open to the idea of working with the foundation to create a school in spite of the legal problems with the way their forms were set up. So that was done. They had, they had a, um, an existing nonprofit college at the time I showed up. They also had been talking to architectural design firms about campus uh, master plan. So that's a, a different kind of architect than the one that builds buildings. And also uh, an, an architectural design firm that had been doing sketches for what you might be able to do, partly because you need to have some understanding of how much money would you have left over after you built the buildings to run the school. So that's when I showed up. They had done really nothing about what the curriculum should be other than some blue sky uh, estimation that uh, was written by a consultant. Uh, that they'd hired in order to help the architects. I mean, if you've ever done this, there's a lot of very uh, uh, difficult blocking and tackling that happens when you start from a blank sheet. If you just want to build a building, it turns out the architect has goes through a series of steps. The first step is called programming the building. If you know what that means, usually the architects get a clipboard and they go down the hallway and they interview all the people who are going to live there and they ask them, you know, like, how many linear feet of shelf space do you need? And who are the three people that you interact with most frequently during the day so we can get the adjacencies right? But when I showed up, we didn't have any people um, yep. and we didn't know what the curriculum was going to be. So somebody had to help them. So they hired um, a person, um, Jim Eifert was his name. He's a wonderful guy. He was the retired provost of Rose Hallman Institute of Technology in Indiana who was another grant recipient from the Olin Foundation in years past. So with, um, with Jim's help, who just kind of like wrote a novel imagining what the school might look like, um, the architects went to work and envisioning spaces and, and having a campus built. But when I got there, they said, look, we know a lot about buildings because we've been funding buildings, you know, um, 70 three buildings on 50 university campuses over 50 years. Uh, well, so you just do all the rest, Rick. I mean, <laughs> in, in, in a way, and this is not fair, but it felt to me like them saying, you know, 
colleges are primarily about two things. They're about endowments and buildings. And we'll take care of that part. And we just want you to live there, you know, and make students happy, make it happen. Um, and so it, it, that was actually a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it was very helpful to have that much freedom that you could really do experiments that no one else could do. Because um, they weren't really um, looking down your neck saying, oh, I think you should teach calculus this way. Um, they, they gave me the freedom to do that. Um, can I, can I ask you Please. just in terms of the location piece, um, it sounds like they had settled on Massachusetts before you came on board. If I, if I was thinking about creating a brand new place that was to be on the cutting edge, I, I, I could have imagined the argument for let's put it in California, you know, in, in somewhere near Silicon Valley and where the most innovation is happening. How, how did the decision to put it in Massachusetts and had they already decided on on co-locating with Wellesley and Babson when you got there or was that something that happened subsequently? Yeah, very good questions. Um, and, and actually that's, you know, I was not there when they went through the iterations to come up with this decision about its location. But what I've been told um, is that this is the end of a four-year conversation that they had. At first, there were discussions about, well, you want to change education. Why wouldn't you just find a school that's doing a really good job in engineering education and put wind under their wings and give them the good housekeeping seal until people look at it? And the story that I heard was, well, they, they talked about that, and there are actually some extremely good and well-known engineering schools within a stone's throw of where we are. But they were concerned that if they did that, that would become a disincentive for them to consider major changes. It would be like, well, you know, if we're already this good, why should we consider doing something fundamentally different? So that discouraged them. So then they thought, well, maybe we could find a really good college that has everything but an engineering school. So they already have residence halls, athletic facilities, health center, all that. And we could just find, um, so we don't have to pay for that. We don't have to build it. We can, we can just find a school that's open to this culture change and we'll provide them the money to start an engineering school. That'll save us money. And, you know, if they have a good culture, we'll start. They didn't work out. Um, they had trouble finding people who understood what they were proposing um, and wanted to do that. It was not their idea to create an engineering school, okay? Um, so that's an issue. And also they con they concluded that it wouldn't get them where they need to go because at the end of the day, if you're um, an engineering college on a university campus, you report to a provost. And the provost has all of the other deans reporting to them as well. There's a certain set of criteria for promotion and tenure at this institution. And all of the colleges uh, adhere to the same set of principles. So they said, well, look, it's just going to put us right into the soup that we're trying to break out of. So we need to, we have no choice. We have to start with a blank sheet and do this all over. And then they considered, well, could be in lots of places. They, from what I understand, they were looking at an institution, a location for an institution on the West Coast. They were also looking at an, for an institution in the middle of the country. And then they were looking on the East Coast. But by the time I arrived, I think they had pretty well had conversations with Babson College about buying land from them. Now, they had bought the land, but they had a very um, uh, uh, willing and open president of Babson who aligned with them and was willing to have conversations with his board. And that was Bill Glavin. 
Um, and Bill was president of Babson for quite a while, but he was also before that the a vice president of Xerox Corporation. I forget exactly what responsibilities he had. Wonderful guy. And he is to this day a dear friend of ours. Um, he helped uh, Larry Milas, the chair of the uh, foundation board, conceive what could be done if you had um, a state-of-the-art engineering school on across the street, essentially, from uh, the nation's number one entrepreneurship school at Babson College. Um, so that's kind of where we started. The, the mission that we were given at the beginning is that the Olin Foundation had high aspirations. And anybody that's going to spend that much money doesn't just want uh, yet another engineering school. So two things. They wanted it to become an important and constant contributor to the advancement of engineering education in America and throughout the world. So it's a game changer. They also thought of it as being an institution that would literally start over and, and create a new paradigm for engineering education. They wouldn't go to Berkeley and ask them, what textbooks do you use for your physics class? It would ask, do you need physics? If you do, do you need courses? Is this something you should teach in tutorials? What about laboratories? All of this. So we had to do reconceptualization from the very beginning around two questions. What does it mean to be an engineer in the 21st century? And what does it mean to be educated in the 21st century? Because a whole lot of neuroscience has come up in just the last 20 years or so. Um, to, and being engineers, we don't think you really understand things by reading about them. You have to make something. You have to do experiments and try them. Because nothing I've ever built as an engineer worked the first time, ever. Um, you usually have to iterate. So we developed a strategic plan, kind of. We called it a strategic plan. It's a strategy anyway, at the very beginning, which is really a blueprint for how to start an institution from a blank sheet of paper. Uh, we called it Invention 2000. Um, it has, for every element of the college, from governance, administration, finance, academics, admissions, student life, all of this, a four-stage plan. The first part was what we called um, um, discovery. Not too much different from what you would expect in a legal sense. Uh, we, had to, we basically said, you can't write anything down until you understand what the state of the art is in this area from other institutions. So we visited, I believe this is right, it's been a while, 30 universities and 20 corporations and asked them what they thought the future of engineering and the future of education was about. It's a learning process, um, discovery. The next process was called invention. And we brought together the most creative, broad-minded um, people from within our community. At that point, we had maybe 10, between 10 and 20 faculty. Um, and we kind of locked them up in a hotel over the weekend. So don't come out until you have a vision for how you could do this. Okay. And by the way, don't just think about the resources available to this little tiny startup college. Think about the resources available in the, in the immediate the vicinity of Babson College, including all of Babson's faculty and coursework, but also Wellesley, and maybe even the region, because I still believe that Olin was fundamentally blessed by its location. Um, Boston is, in essence, 
the um, Silicon Valley of higher education. It's got something like 50 colleges and universities within a 25-mile radius. It's hard to go to the grocery store without running into a faculty member in front of you or behind you. Um, this is a very rich environment of talent um, that is available to you and anxious to be helpful, um, not like you would find in certain other remote regions in the country. So that was the second part, invention. So use the most creative ideas that you've found and, and, and assume for the moment that our neighbors would be willing to work with us. Then the can third I, part. Can I just, could I just ask you about the, the, sure. the neighbors part of that in terms of yes. the location? Um, yes. And then I, I, I want to make sure to come back to the third and fourth parts. So um, with the co-location with Babson and Wellesley, and then yes. a, as we talked about last time, I was at the Keck Graduate Institute, which was yes. strategically located within the Claremont Colleges. Do you believe that the ability to do this unusual degree of innovation in a very focused way, but with the resources of those others, is that a prerequisite for that? It seems like Olin reached that through a series of steps, right? We don't want to be fully a part of another institution, but we would like to leverage the resources there. As you've thought about it, 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 for people who want to start something radically new, do you see that combination as being a key element of that? Well, of course, we've only done it one way, but yeah. um, this way vastly exceeded our expectations. I can't imagine how Olin would be the institution that it is today without the welcoming environment, the open, creative approach and partnership that we had with neighbors. Um, we, we counted on Babson being that way because we had talked with their board and their president was that way, but not Wellesley. Wellesley was just happened to be a neighbor, but we were really fortunate in Diana Chapman Walsh, who was the president at the time. Diana was one of the first people who reached out and called me. They welcomed me to the neighborhood and said, there's some way that we can work with you. Um, turns out that Wellesley is a liberal arts college. It does not have an engineering department, but they have a number of young ladies who are amazing scholars were quite interested in science and technology. And she had pointed out that a few years before we arrived, Wellesley had been approached by a private foundation to offer them funding to create an engineering school as the only in the first and only women's only uh, engineering program. And the faculty at Wellesley had considered that and apparently decided it was too steep of a mountain to climb and declined. And of course, we know that another school uh, did that exact thing yeah. uh, shortly thereafter. You see, they had to compete with, and that's Smith College. That's um, right. And so she says, having you as our next door neighbor doing this would be of great interest to your friends here at Wellesley. So we had enormous uh, goodwill and uh, support and, and uh, advice and counsel from our neighbors. And to do this, on the prairie in Kansas with no school around for 100 miles in any direction would not have turned out this well. And it's not just the welcomingness, but the fact that you were able to focus, even with half a billion dollars, right, in terms of building a faculty for business or for the general education, to do that well, right, would have been a, a huge other investment that you didn't have to make, right? Absolutely right. In, in addition to that, um, while the campus was being built, because we didn't break ground on the campus until May of 2000, and I had arrived there in February of 1999, 
Um, we didn't teach any courses until September of 2002. So all of this formation period, the beginning, we didn't have any buildings until the fall of 2002. Um, so Babson housed us. I mean, my first office was kind of a vacant um, uh, closet in Nichols Hall on the Babson campus, which is their finance building. And I, in fact, I think we have a... a we have a picture somewhere of a sticky note on my door that says Rick Miller, president Olin college and, and a question mark behind it. Um, <laughs> what that was important because I was immersed in the Babson community for about a year. And most of our leadership team joined me there. And until the, until about the beginning of 2000, when we moved to little farmhouses over here on the current side of our campus, um, I got to experience how Babson thinks about education. Not that we followed it, but it sure inspired us. So, for example, they have a course at Babson called FME, uh, Foundation Management Experience. And the idea, this is, this is experiential learning in a business school. So what they did is they take all of the incoming freshmen. Now, I have to tell you, I haven't followed in recent years, so they may have deviated from this now. But certainly 20 years ago they did. All the students are put on a team, and I mean a big team. I think there were 25 students on every team. And then they gave them some seed money in September, and they said, your job is to conceive a new business, uh, create this business as a group, run it for a year, repay the seed money, and we'll have a big uh, you know, conference at the end of the year where we'll shut down classes, and each of these teams will tell us what you did and you'll donate the profits that you created to charity. So it was experiential learning. And I went to this, and I watched them the first year, and it was jaw-dropping. Number one, 25 students on a team, nobody does that. It's way too big. <laughs> yeah. um, you spend 90% of your time arguing about what you're supposed to be doing. Um, oh, and who's the person who can tell us? Because they didn't assign who the leader is. They learned a lot about how important leadership is. and. Then there were kids who said, you know, my job was the IT director, and which means that they ran the email. And there was a person who's the HR director, who's, oh, they don't have money. So the real job was to make sure that people worked uh, uh, about an equal amount of time. Um, and th at the end of the year, um, lots of train wrecks along the way. Kids' motivation was through the roof. They said, well, now I really want to know how HR works. I would love to understand what marketing is all about, and management, man, management 101, I've got to learn that so that I can be friends with the people that I'm working with and not argue with them all the time. Um, so it, it turned out to be um, transformational for me and I think for our leadership team, gave us courage that project-based learning uh, could really work. By the way, we did a couple of these visits. One of them, which I think was even more powerful, was a visit we made to Harvard Medical School. Uh, there was an associate dean, uh, uh, Liz Armstrong, at Harvard Medical School, was in charge of something called the New Pathways Program um, that Daniel Tosteson had started there. And the, the bottom line is that medicine has gone through the same transition that engineering is. What he found out was that um, it takes a long time to do science-based education in medicine before you get into the clinic, and a lot of medical students don't remember it. Um, it's a, bit, a whole lot of memorization. Um, and then they, and they see real patients and they had to kind of have to learn it all over. And they said, look, this is not sustainable. The Human Genome Project comes along 
And the amount of stuff that you have to learn is overwhelming. So you have to learn how to learn. It's just completely changed the paradigm. And we, we went to a course at Harvard that was just jaw-dropping, uh, first-year medical students. Uh, and they let us sit in there and just watch. Um, there were, I think, six students in a little conference room. Uh, the, the faculty member walked in the first day, explained something about this course, that you're going to have to learn how to be a physician on your own. That's the point. And at the end of the semester, we're going to have you stand and deliver in front of the medical faculty to explain what you learned. Here's the first case study. He puts a vanilla folder on the table. This is the case of Mrs. Smith. Mrs. Smith was in the ER last night. She has severe headaches. The MRI scan for Mrs. Smith is in the folder. What's wrong with Mrs. Smith? And he sat down and folded his arms in the corner. And I said, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get some lectures on this. Um, and the kids looked at each other and they said, well, um, you know, why don't you, David, go to the library and read everything you can, can about headaches. And I'll take this funny looking graph that they've given us and see if I can find somebody who can tell us what an MRI is. And let's meet back here at two o'clock. Um, and then at two o'clock, they reconvene and he gives them some more. Now, here's the blood work on Mrs. Smith. Now, what's wrong with Mrs. Smith? And the point of this is that they're going to have to stand in front of the medical faculty in a few weeks and give a full diagnosis of what's wrong with her, um, even though they not had courses that explain this material. And I'm saying, oh my gosh, uh, boy, I hope somewhere along the line they get an instruction before they leave Harvard about how to do this. It means I might have these people as my own physician. Um, and then we realized that if you could do that in medicine, you can probably do that in engineering too. Um, and so that gave us the courage to, to do big experiments at Olin and not spoon feed everybody. This is calculus one, calculus two, calculus three. Oh, now here's a project. Um, and so the next part of our curriculum after the invention part, which was bold and included a lot of these experimental things, the next part of this was to, um, to do testing because as engineers, we're pretty sure that what you build the first time doesn't work. And you have to iterate on this with a wisdom before you can tell how to make it work. So we said we need, um, we need to, to do testing on learning methods with real students. Uh, and so this, this motivated us to try the third part of our plan, which remember the first one was invention. Uh, I mean, was discovery and then invention. And this one is test. So we set aside a whole year for this. And we called it the Olin Partner Year. And what we did was we recruited 15 boys and 15 girls to come and live for a year in a parking lot while the campus was being built to be available to partner with the faculty on a first-name basis to try outrageous experiments in learning that we expected to fail. Now, you can't actually do these experiments at a school like Harvard because you can't set people up to fail on purpose uh, just so that you can watch them. So they actually weren't students. They were not getting course credit for anything. They weren't going to graduate early. Um, they were here to try things. And I can give you an illustration of this. After being inspired by what we saw both at Babson and at Harvard with projects, um, one of our faculty members in a meeting one day said, what do you remember about your undergraduate education all these years later? It's a very humbling question, by the way. Um, what, what we said, well, I remember we had physics because I remember the book was 
Paladin Resnick or something like this, and fields and waves and light. That was very complicated. Um, hmm. But I don't remember much more than that. And please don't ask me to solve a quantum mechanics problem today. I haven't done one of those in 40 years. But everybody could remember the project they worked on, the senior project in particular. Um, I can even remember what I was eating at the time the breakthrough idea occurred to me why it wasn't working. Um, this was true for everyone. And if we went around the table, we said, gee, that's, that's fascinating. The amount of retention of knowledge that you get from a project is so orders of magnitude higher than it is from taking a test or reading a book. Um, given that that's true, why do we wait until the senior year to do that? Imagine what would have happened if we'd started that way. Well, nobody had started that way. We all had it only in the senior year, so there's got to be a reason. And we figured, well, it must be that you have to have all these prerequisite courses in math and science and stuff, or you could never figure out how to make a project work. You know, sort of like if Zeus is up there in the clouds with his lightning bolt, and he'll strike you dead if you pick up a wrench without getting a B on your physics course. Um, and, you know, we just don't know what people are capable of doing. So, so let's try this. We have these kids. So we came up with a project. They, had, they were all, I think, 18. They just graduated from high school. Nobody had any college at all. We put them on teams at the first day. And we said, we have a challenge for you. We want you to design, build, and demonstrate a pulse oximeter. We want you to do that in five weeks. And they said, excuse me, a what? So we, so we spelled out the word pulse oximeter. Uh, what is a pulse oximeter? And we said, well, it's one of these medical instruments that you find in the hospital, you know. It's the thing they clip on your finger, and it measures the uh, pulse rate and the oxygen content in your blood. That's what it does. Actually, during this COVID time, a lot of people know what a pulse oximeter is. Have them at home now. Um, and they said, well, cool. You know, uh, where do we find out about it? I mean, how, how could they know that it was complicated and they wouldn't know how to do it? So we said, well, why don't you start with the patent literature? Find the patent, and the person who invented it has to have a little schematic diagram. And he has to have um, a rough explanation of how the thing works. Oh, and we have some tools over there. And, you know, we'll answer any questions that you want. Um, but, you know, we've never built one either, so we're not an expert. Oh, and this is not an SAT test. So we don't care if you talk to your neighbors. It's fine. In fact, if you have an aunt that's a nurse somewhere in a hospital or an uncle that's an electrical engineer and is, works on medical instruments, go talk to them. We don't care. Learn everything you can as a group. Because in five weeks, we're moving on. Uh, we want you to design, build, and demonstrate this thing in five weeks. That was the idea. We figured this, no chance this is going to work. If you actually know what's inside of a pulse oximeter, it's got gazillions of transistors. And transistors are these little things that involve quantum mechanics and physics. And they've not had the physics. How could they possibly they don't even know what the parts do? Um, so we figured they'd get really frustrated. But we'd learn something about watching them. But you know what? Uh, they shocked us. Uh, they made one, and they made it work. Uh, it was amazing. In fact, we put the hospital version adjacent to the one that they built, and they're both doing the same thing. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. You would not ever want to buy the thing that they built. I mean, it was a, kind of a miracle that the soldering didn't short out just by the way of looking at it, but, but it did work. Um, so we learned two things from this experiment, um, which we then built on for the rest of the year. Number one, 
no, you don't need two years of calculus and physics before you can make things. And duh, the aircraft industry was designed by two bicycle mechanics in Ohio. It wasn't didn't come out of a physics lab at, at Berkeley. Um, so, of course, uh, you can learn by just making things. Um, you don't need those things in order to get started. That was really important. But even more important was the observations about what this experience did to the students themselves. Um, it was as if they were two feet taller now. There was a sense of, yes, I can change the world. If I have four or five kids like me, a couple of old guys to ask questions once in a while in a lab, I can build anything I can imagine, and I can make the world a better place. That was profound, because as we all thought back on our first-year experience in engineering school, the places we went, nobody had that kind of an attitude. It was exactly the opposite, sort of what we call the, the math-science death march. Uh, look to your left and look to your right. Probably two of you are going to be gone by the end of the <laughs> semester. Um, only the tough survive, and oh, no, we're not going to actually build anything. I mean. Um, this was this was a revolutionary uh, set of experiments, but of course we thought must have been an accident. It must have been something about that particular project that makes it deceptively easy. So we need to do it again, and all year long, about every five weeks, we tried something completely different. Uh, and this was in the test phase, and we we concluded, by the way, at the end of this, that kids almost universally are capable of doing much more independent work than we think. Uh, we, we, for our reasons, want to structure it. We want to make sure, oh, everybody would answer yes if we asked them they heard of this word before. Um, stuff that's for us, but it's not necessarily for learning. Um, and that's getting in the way of producing the kinds of engineers that the world needs in the next generation. So that was one of the really important um, learning observations that we had. And the second one was, Working together as a team is transformational. Um, each of us had done that once in the senior project because we were required to, but there are teams and then there are teams, you know. When the teams that we had um, you know, decades ago were like four kids who were all mechanical engineers at the same university. So we had all the same prerequisite courses. Uh, we now we had, to, we had to agree on who's going to use the wrench first, and that was pretty much it. Um, when we put together teams doing these things, these were people who were not engineers. We involved teams from Wellesley, teams from Babson, teams from had some occasionally outside uh, practicing people in industry, or e even now um, residents in a nursing home. They're part of our team to understand human-centric design. Um, and we now, of course, we've embedded this in a curriculum the average kid at Olin, when they, when they reach commencement, has completed 25 to 35 design-build projects, and they've worked on a capstone project for a year for a company where the company is providing $55,000 for the privilege of working with four to six kids um, for, on two semesters for a class, and they often produce patents and new, new technologies out of it. And a lot of people are shocked that you can do this. Um, David, I don't think you would be shocked because you're you're aware of the clinic project that Harvey Mudd does, yep. which um, although it doesn't involve 25 to 35 projects, there are other things that are involved as well, but is stunning for its ability to create um, focus on real problems, uh, challenging problems. So that came out of our test phase. 
Can I follow up on just a couple of things before we go to the fourth phase? So, so one is in the original remit that you were given by the foundation, was there a clear focus that it was on undergraduate education? Because of course, most engineering education, those institutions that are most well-known bridge the two. That's right. It was. Um, in fact, even going back to the work at the National Science Foundation in the Engineering Education Coalitions Program, the widespread concern was that undergraduate education is not up to par in the U.S. Graduate education seems to be world class. Just by judging uh, from the traffic that shows up in the U.S. that wants to get a Ph.D. in engineering at America's flagship universities, um, there isn't. Uh, there isn't. Well, there's getting to be more competition now, but there wasn't much competition when we started Olin for that. Uh, so yes, it was focused on undergraduate education, and only to this day does not offer graduate degrees. Um, the last phase of this project, after we had done the testing yep. and seen how to learn from making mistakes, is development. And the idea here was we were thinking, um, gee, now that you you have pioneered new ways of thinking about this, and you know how would you possibly include all the topics? that you cram into these very packed courses that stand on the, in a curriculum in engineering um, into a, a, a curriculum that has very few courses and lots of projects instead. Aren't you going to miss something? Aren't you going to lose the depth that you might get in a, you know, an advanced course in some kind of calculus? Um, and that was a big concern. And we assumed that doing it this way, where you pack it into a series of projects, would be... Um, uh, that you wouldn't be able to find materials. You won't find textbooks that are written to support that approach. And you won't find um, laboratory equipment that's, that's fixed for that. So, so we're probably going to have to make our own. So you should just imagine you're going to have to write your own books. You're going to have to write your own laboratories. And that's going to take time. So let's put it in the strategic plan. That's basically what we did. Um, and, you know, we've done a lot of thinking about it. There are trade-offs. Um, there is a point. Uh, which is a bridge too far. When you try to do too many projects, you don't have enough background. Um, to me, it, there are lots of analogies to think about it. One of them is, how do you learn um, a language? Uh, part of it is recognition of vocabulary words, understanding what the words mean. And part of it is the skill of expressing a belief or a feeling inside through creative uh, integration of the words that you do know. So, do you memorize the Oxford Dictionary before you allow somebody to make a sentence? I mean, is that the right approach? Or do you do it the way babies do? They don't have a dictionary. Everything is in context, and they pick it up as they go. And kids are amazingly good at this, right? We don't even think about teaching them vocabulary words before they go to school. Um, and we think that that has an analogy to learning engineering by doing. Um, and, and in terms of the curriculum, I've always thought of it uh, is an analogy to learning music. Um, I have had more than a casual interest in music in my own background. And while I was in the formative years of thinking about Olin, I had a daughter who was a student at, in the uh, Suzuki program. I don't know if you know about the Suzuki Yes, uh, sure. Music yeah, the very school. small violins, right? Yes, and piano. So she, had, she took both. She took Suzuki piano and Suzuki violin. For those who don't know about the Suzuki program, it's an experiential learning program for learning music. They'll take three-year-olds 
and they'll teach him to play a quarter-sized violin by listening. You listen to the to Twinkle Little Star until you can sing it, and then they teach you how to make the sound with your fingers, and, and you there's no notes involved. Um, and then you do this as a group. There's a there's a uh, a dynamic that happens in playing in a team. Um, and then there is a very careful sequencing of the increasing complexity of the tunes from one song to the next in this curriculum. Um, it's scaffolded in that way. Uh, you learn how to do a vibrato at one point in the music. In another one, you learn how to do a trill, and you learn how to do a cadenza, and so on. Um, this is kind of what the Olin curriculum does. It's a careful sequencing of a series of projects, which start out pretty intuitive, and they end up at the end with, you know, inventions. Well, one of the kids worked for Boston Scientific, in who has been a sponsor of our capstone for a number of years, on trying to design a method to remove the gallbladder from a human without making an incision through the skin. And they have patents on this. That's not so intuitive. Um, and you can learn that way. Um, so that development was the last piece. So at any rate, uh, discovery, invention, test, and development. And can I ask you for, for doing that, that test phase, where did you find these 30, 18-year-olds <laughs> who were willing to come and spend a year with you without getting a single course credit and, and helping yes. you figure, figure this thing out? Well, I would love to tell you that you know, we had this in our plans from the first day, and you know, this was like had an admission plan aimed at just these unique people, but that would not be true. Uh, it was more accident than it was design. Um, we had, uh, it, I'll just uh, tell you exactly how this unfolded. We had, as you know, the foundation working with the architects to build the campus, and um, myself and our uh, faculty team working on developing the curriculum. And of course, we were also developing finance and governance and the rest at the same time. But um, they have to meet each other uh, and be on the same schedule so that the buildings are done by the time the students arrive. That's the point. Um, and it didn't happen. What happened was the um, that Mr. Milas, the president of the Holman Foundation, who was directing the college's efforts in campus construction, got into an argument with the architects. Um, and I think it had something to do with the fee structure, which was part of the contract that we signed. Um, he was unhappy about that, and he decided to stop paying them. Um, and I said, but Larry, if you stop paying them, they'll stop working. I know this. It doesn't take rocket science. <laughs> I've been if in they... Babson for a year. Yeah. They tell me these things. Yeah. If they stop working, do you know what that will mean? We will not have buildings when the kids get here. And what are we going to do about that? We've already you know, talked to these kids about admission. Um, and he just sort of folded his arms and said, well, it's the principle of the thing. You know, he wouldn't, uh, no, no judge would, would allow um, a, a client to get away with that. So, so we're just going to say no. So we had a crisis meeting, a uh, leadership team in a farmhouse on the side of the hill. What are we going to do about this? Um, SWAT, you know, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Um, if we tell these kids and these college uh, counselors at these 600 math and science academies across the country, never mind, we're actually not going to open the school next year, they'll never listen to us again. We have no credibility. They're not going to tap their bright kids on the shoulder and send them our way. 
So that's not an option. We have to find something we can do. And our um, creative team, um, leadership team, came up with the idea of what we called the Olin Partner Year. They just said, well, we don't have room for, you know, 100 of them, but we could just take 15 boys and 15 girls and, and we'll just we'll send them a note and we'll say, You're, you know, you have been chosen for a very special assignment. When people ask you where you're going to college, tell them you're building your own. And then we'll make you partners with us. And we need your help. And we said, will anybody do this? Probably not. I don't know what we're going to do. It turns out we had 600 applications for that 30 spots. So that's like 20 to 1. Um, They were an amazing group of kids, of course. There were some unusual things about them, which we discovered. I think this has to do with being a startup. Um, I don't believe, it's been a long time now, so I could be. You know, the problem with getting old is not what people think. Your memory actually gets better as you get older. In fact, it becomes so good that sometimes you remember things that never even happened. So, <laughs> so you have to be a little careful about this. But I believe that um, a number of these kids, uh, no one had a parent from an Ivy League institution. And I don't believe any of the first group uh, had parents who were graduates of MIT. Um, this was a different cohort. I mean, I think the most common career of a parent in that early cohort was was a nurse. That was Most of them had a nurse in their family. And the next was they had a father who was a salaried engineer somewhere, not a CEO. Yep. Um, and that's, of course, changed now. Uh, now we have a number of students who's who you know, are in these admission classes whose parents teach at MIT or Harvard, um, and they're wonderful uh, kids. But in the beginning, you're not known by anyone, and a lot of the uh, parents are kind of worried about it. But the kids were brilliant. I mean, they were like off scale, and Olin was free. Um, we could guarantee it wouldn't cost you anything to go here. Um, that's before the financial crisis, which caused us to reduce our across the board uh, scholarship for everyone. So um, so that played a huge role in the beginning. And of course, once you do this, once you do what we called Candidates Weekend, which was an attempt to find people who don't just have math ability, but who have attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs that will prepare them to take on the um, risky proposition of being the first class to pioneer through a curriculum because we knew that um, you couldn't get the curriculum designed right without doing tests. We also believe you couldn't teach a course right without having taught it before either. And everything that we taught for the first four years was a first time ever effort. Um, and that wound up failing a good fraction of the time. So these couldn't be fragile. The kids had to be pretty okay with this um, and know what they're getting into. So we had what we called Candidates Weekend. So you had to have a reasonable amount of test scores to get invited because you can't run with this crowd if you don't know anything about physics and math. Um, But that's not nearly enough. So we then put them in small groups and we tested to find out who they are. Um, we, We had them in a small team design and build something. Like who can build the tallest tower out of this box of styrofoam and and paper clips? Um, You have three hours to figure it out. There'll be a contest to see which team can do it. 
we'll give you a, a phony prize at lunchtime if your team does it. We actually don't care whose team has the biggest uh, tower, but we care a lot about how they work with each other. And then we'd put them in a small room and ask them how they deal with controversy. You know, so they would pull a question out of a hat um, that has nothing to do with science. A question like, what do you think of the Iraq War? Um, and then we would, it's not, it's not that we have a particular answer we're looking for, but we, you know, it wouldn't be good if they said, uh, they never heard of the Iraq War. Um, <laughs> but we tell them, you've got 20 minutes to prepare a five-minute presentation on the Iraq War. Um, everyone on your team has to speak. Go. And we sit in the back of the room and just watch. Um, so the first thing they say is like, David, what do you think about the Iraq War? You know, And they have to have a polished presentation when they're done. And of course, a lot is at stake here. $100,000 scholarship is at stake and admission to the school. Um, and these are like kids that you're competing with, that you're on a team with. How does that work? Um, complicated. And then the last part of this is to ask them um, what it means, in my view, what does it mean to live a good life? What are the passions that you have in life that are beyond science and technology, the things that give your life meaning? Um, and obviously, they, they always have a uh, story to tell. And the story in, in usually involves two themes that are intertwined. One of them is doing well. Uh, and nobody wants to get out and be homeless. And the other one is doing good, uh, doing something bigger than self. Um, in the in the how you, you know, which one comes first and w which is most of your emphasis tells you a lot about who the kids are. Um, and we pioneered that for the, in the very first group. The, the Olin partners went through this, and then we couldn't not do it for all the rest of the time that we've been there. Now, Rick, you've, you've left one key element out, though, because my son Sam went through this. <laughs> and the part I remember most was the entertainment in the evening for the students and the parents <laughs> where you had the students juggling fire. And yes. I thought that that was a very telling test. I can't think of a lot of other college presidents that ha have people doing something that could be death-defying on, on the, the, that screening weekend. Yes, it's true that um, the fire jugglers are a tradition at Olin. I wouldn't say, as the college president, that was my idea, uh, <laughs> nor was it something that I would put a lot of wind under their wings for. It's something you can't stop once they got started. Um, I also talked to them a bit um, about uh, other kinds of entertainment. You, you, I'm not sure if you ran into this, but we also have something called FWAP, the Franklin W. Olin Players. It's a drama group um, which does original plays that they put together, sometimes uh, coordinating with students from Wellesley and Babson as, um, as part of the acting corps. Uh, and also um, the Conductorless Orchestra, which is a, quite a sophisticated musical ensemble at Olin. Um, because we have, for example, one of our founding faculty members all, is Diana Dabby. She was one of the original um, creators of the school. Uh, Diana is a professor of electrical engineering and music. No, we don't give music degrees. It's just who she is. Uh, she started her life as a concert pianist. She's played solo at Carnegie Hall in New York. She's also taught, taught part-time at Juilliard. She's a composer. She has uh, toured Asia and Europe. Um, amazing. Um, Mid-career, 
she became somewhat intimidated with electronic music. She's an acoustic pianist. So she went back to school. And against all odds, she completed her PhD in electrical engineering at MIT. Uh, her PhD advisor was MR Bose. You know, I think I have Bose headphones yep. on right now. Um, when we found her, she was teaching circuit design at MIT on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But she was teaching music theory across the street at Tufts University on Tuesday and Thursday. And she wasn't telling the other one what she was doing. <laughs> and we said, what's going on, Diana? And she says, well, if they discover I'm actually a musician, they may not respect me because that's not what you do. And we said, no, no, it's time to come out of the closet. That's what we do at Owen. We look for multiple intelligences. And she demonstrates that by the way her brain works. Uh, she's taught courses in Da Vinci as scientist and artist and how one informs the other. Um, she's taught courses in circuit design inspired by music composition. I think it's called point and counterpoint um, and how you do DC circuit design. So that's what I meant when I said you couldn't have built this school uh, any other place uh, because of the indigenous talent that just shows up um, in the suburbs here of Boston. So, so that's part of, uh, part of our mission program. Yeah. And I'm curious how did you apply that same sort of logic to choosing your founding faculty? So, um, you know, obviously you've honed that student selection over a number of years and, and it's worked well. But, but when you put that original faculty group together, when it wasn't even clear exactly what you were going to be teaching and whatnot, how did you go about picking not just outstanding individuals like her, but, but, but a, a group that was going to work well together? Yeah, that's, that's a really important story. Um, one of the things that we benefited from enormously was Sam Tannenbaum. You might know who Sam is. Sam was the, maybe the first, but certainly one of the first uh, deans of the faculty at Harvey Mudd College when they grew up. And Sam had helped us understand a bit what it means to bring faculty to a, to a blank sheet as opposed to a, a departmentalized college. Um, we found. Um, Number one, we've learned a lot about faculty recruiting. So the way we did it at the very first may not be the way we would do it today, um, but we but some things we got right. One of the things that we learned was that if you announce on the front page of the New York Times, as the Olin Foundation did, that they were going to make one of the largest gifts in history to higher education to start over in engineering and they were looking for great talent, don't be surprised if you get a lot of well-known people who apply. Um, in fact, I think we had about 150 uh, faculty resumes for every person that we recruited. Um, some very well-known people. And I don't think, you know, with very few exceptions in terms of the leadership team, we didn't recruit any of them. We brought them in to talk to us, and we learned a great deal from them. But it was I personally was a bit worried about their openness to completely different ideas. They, they were often people who had lived in an institution for a long time, developed a very well articulated view of what needs to be changed, like something like writing across the curriculum. And they were frustrated in their home institution that they couldn't achieve this because of some political roadblock. And so they felt, well, this is my opportunity. I can move now. I can, I can have it my way and we'll change and the whole college will follow this approach. But there were like five of them and they all had different visions. <laughs> and and I, I wasn't hearing a lot of listening 
It sounded like what would happen is that you'd have this sort of gladiator match where the youngest and most vigorous one would eventually annihilate the others, and then we'd just have that curriculum. Now, I'm obviously fantasizing a bit. This isn't literally what happened. But these were the concerns as we were thinking about it. And we hired a lot of really very bright young people. Uh, and a few people like Diana, who were just, you just couldn't not recruit Diana. She was so creative and, and so modeled what it meant to be a person with multiple intelligences that we looked for them going forward. And, we, and it was a challenge. Um, you know, everywhere else I've been, and I've been mostly, well, actually exclusively to R1 and mostly AAU institutions, it's about research. So if you recruit a faculty member, they come and they give you a research seminar based on their thesis. Um, and that's pretty much it. You do it on one day. They go have dinner with a department chair and a couple of faculty members, and then the committee decides whether they're the right one. That's not what we do at an undergraduate institution. Uh, so it's not a very good fit. Plus, at the very beginning, we don't have any students, and there's no experts to listen to it. We were recruiting secretaries to sit there and pretend like they were in the audience while people were giving us their you know, computational fluid dynamics uh, thesis from Berkeley. Um, kind of awkward. So we made a lot of guesses. What I did, um, uh, myself and our two other academics who were absolutely critical to getting us where we are, and that's David Kearns, who was the founding provost, and his wife, Shara Kearns, who was the VP for Innovation and Research. And we were like the only people on staff when the original faculty members were recruited who had PhDs. And we had to get like 10 of them. That's a lot of work. But it looked like you have 150 resumes for every person. So that's like 1,500 resumes to go through. And you have all these interviews. So we asked for help. I asked Sam, for example, Sam Tannenbaum, if he'd be willing to read the applicants for the chemistry position. And, and just like, I dog ear a few of them and say, if I were in your shoes, I would want to meet these people. And we did the same things with others. We had Steve Director, who was a dear friend. Uh, Steve, at that point, I believe, was the uh, Dean of Engineering at Carnegie Mellon. Or maybe that was after he moved to Michigan, one of the two. Um, really bright people, uh, creative. And they gave us advice. And then, of course, once they sent us the dog-eared resumes, I said, well, would you be willing to be on a committee now and meet them with us? And so we just kept kind of like quicksand drawing them in. Got very good advice. But let me fast forward to the, what we've learned about this faculty recruiting and how we do it, did it the last time at Olin. Uh, one of the things that we found is that this candidate's weekend for looking at how students work together as teams has uh, transformative in the way the school works. Uh, and it's totally consistent with the vision of the curriculum where they work in teams a lot. Well, you can only teach what you know. And if you have students working in teams all the time, you need to have faculty that work in teams too. And the usual way of recruiting faculty at research universities doesn't give much uh, emphasis on that at all. In fact, it's the opposite. You want them to be independent scholars. So we created a couple of years ago a program which I will call um, uh, Candidates Week for Faculty Members. And it was an experiment. It was the first one out. And I think there's some things we would do differently now, but it, but it really exceeded expectations. What we did, we invited 16 faculty candidates to come in one week in two groups of eight. Um, and we interviewed them as a team, as a group. This never happens, right? 
So, but they're not all in the same field. So you might have a mathematician and a, and a, a, a sociologist and a, an electrical engineer all uh, on the same team. And we put them together with about 30 students who came. This is during J term, during the uh, January break between semesters. The campus is largely empty. Um, and that way the faculty are not teaching other things so they can stay there and watch the whole thing. And we brought in 30 kids who came back from their winter break for this reason to work with these teams of candidates for faculty so they could get some realistic experience in trying to design a curriculum real time within a group with a group of students who are Olin students who aren't just lambs. They turn around and they tell you, excuse me, Dr. Miller, you think you're teaching uh, structural analysis, but we're lost in the matrix. Uh, uh, algebra. So unless you can teach us what matrices do, don't bother going through the rest of it. Um, and that's not considered inappropriate at Olin, but it's not uh, what other schools do. So at any rate, we had 16, uh, two groups of eight, got at the end of the week. I told the provost, we have money for four, pick out who you want. He came back and he says, geez, we really need to recruit all eight. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but we don't have a budget for eight. Um, I think he wound up uh, engineering their budget over several years so that they could stagger um, a future hires. And, and we had a group of, um, of people who came to us as visitors for a year. And others did a postdoc at a place that would fill in. Um, it was transformational. Again, it, this is one of those things we learned from medicine. Um, if you have to have your appendix out, uh, you are unconscious and you're depending on a team uh, to work on you. There's, a, there's an OR nurse, there's an anesthesiologist, there's a surgeon, and there's an attending person too. Um, if they've never met each other before and they just sort of uh, were assigned to that 15 minutes before you went in, the data shows that the outcomes are not very good. Why would you think that um, being randomly assigned to a team to teach engineering education would work out either? Um, so why don't you look for people who are well equipped to work effectively in teams? I, you know, I call this um, uh, interdisciplinary and collaborative mindset. So if you're a person with a collaborative mindset in a, in a sort of Olin speak, that means you're a person who by instinct doesn't like to eat alone. And you rarely just eat with the same people almost never with the people that took the same graduate courses and PhD program that you did. And you're curious. You just want to know how other people think about the world. Um, that's how um, mutually supportive teamwork works. It's through a group of mindsets. And I would, I would sort of list them this way, and I'd later sort of map them on to what I've heard from industry about the missing basics that corporations have been for decades asking us to create in engineering schools. One of them is this collaborative mindset to work as a group. Another one is an interdisciplinary mindset so that you don't just narrowly focus on a sub area within your discipline, figuring that's the ticket to success. In fact, I think of it the opposite. Uh, your, the, the title on your degree, hanging your diploma hanging on the wall, is like your hometown. It's where you grew up. You obviously know where Main Street, the post office is. But if you're still living in your hometown 25 years later, unless your hometown is New York City, you really haven't grown very much. Um, and so 
thinking of your disciplinary background as a launch pad for things that you'll learn in the future is a mindset that is fundamental to doing well in this environment. Um, understanding and learning what I'd call an entrepreneurial mindset. Now, this I know that's a word that comes out of business schools like Babson. We're not talking about starting a business. I'm talking about taking initiative and doing things, um, doing things without resources, uh, based on passion, where you have to get other people to cooperate. I would describe it this way, and, and, and it's it's identical to the definition we have for what it means to be an engineer. An engineer is a person who envisions what has never been and does whatever it takes to make it happen. Okay. I think my aunt and uncle who never visited the university would understand what I'm trying to say about an engineer there. Um, My friends at MIT and at Caltech and places where I was a student would be appalled at this because it doesn't start with mathematics. Okay. Uh, And I think that's the problem of being trapped in your discipline. It's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. I, you know, if you have time, I could tell you this anecdote that I ran into recently from Peretz Levy, uh, who was the president of the Technion in Israel. Um, he, he was interviewed in an article in the Wall Street Journal recently about the new Cornell Tech campus. You may know that Cornell has started this new campus on Roosevelt Island. It's so a joint venture with Technion. Right? Exactly. And that was what the Wall Street Journal was asking. Why in the world would Cornell go all the way over to Israel to find a partner to do this? I mean, have you not heard of MIT? I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of schools that are right across the street. Um, And Peretz was asking it. Well, it's because Israel uh, is a singularity. Israel creates more new ventures per square inch um, than any other school, certainly in uh, not just the Middle East, but all of the, the European world. Um, and they, and they are, the um, author from the Wall Street Journal said, now I'm really confused. I don't understand this at all. How can that be? I mean, you're in Israel, right? I mean, you have these people on all sides who don't like you. Um, you're looking down the gun barrel of people from every side. How could you possibly be creative and come up with ideas that create new businesses? And Peretz said, see, you got it exactly backwards. He says, you couldn't live in Israel um, without being an optimist. Otherwise, you'll go insane. Okay? You have to be able to envision there could be a better world. And because you're in Israel, you know it's up to you to make it happen. And those two elements of envisioning their, a better world and taking the personal initiative to make it work are the heart of what it means to have an entrepreneurial mindset. That's great. So we need to find faculty with an entrepreneurial mindset. Then we need to find people. Um, with, I would call, an empathetic heart, understanding that technology affects people uh, in profound ways, either for good or not for good, either intentionally or not intentionally. But whatever you're doing, it's affecting people in a big way. So you need to have uh, a personal concern and empathy for others. And the final one is a global mindset. Because in, you, I would argue that America is arguably the most culturally deprived country on earth. And the reason is, we don't know about anything else but what happened in the U.S. We, are, we wind up being arrogant. Um, we wind up thinking that if it's important, it's here already in the U.S. And the smartest people are all here. 
Um, and everybody speaks English who knows anything anyway, so why should we learn another language? And we don't learn anything about the rest of the culture. No matter where else you go, they know much more about us than we know about them. And I can't think of a company in the 21st century who would imagine that its future is entirely tied to the U.S. and U.S. cultural norms. Um, China is going to be the largest economy, I believe, in another few decades. Um, and America is not going to be the, the largest. If you're going, and the companies even like IBM are not American companies, they're global companies that happen to have headquarters in the U.S. So we need a group of um, educators who have these five mindsets. And I was curious, you, 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 you built very clearly the entrepreneurial piece into the educational model. Did you give consideration to requiring students to have a global experience before they graduate? We did at the beginning. This is one of those things we got blindsided by. The original concept for Olin was that every kid would spend at least a semester abroad. We would get them out of the U.S. We even had an international student among the um, Olin partners, the 15 boys and 15 girls. But what happened was an accident. Um, Olin's partners arrived on, um, on Labor Day in 2001. Well, about 10 days later was September 11th in 2001, and the whole world's attitude about having international students here changed, including the U.S. Senate, who said, stop, do not give any other schools the opportunity to bring foreign students to the U.S. indefinitely. Um, that freeze on our ability to grant, for example, student visas to international students prevented us from moving forward with that. So we just sort of put it on hold and we said it's, it's a cultural experience outside of our community. It could be in Alabama or something or Latin America or a place that wasn't so radioactive. Um, and by the time that sort of melted, the, the cement had hardened at Olin in the curriculum and then it became really hard to carve out an entire semester for kids to go abroad. We still have a very active study away program. And I would say, uh, it's been a while since I've looked at the statistics on this. I'm going to guess somewhere around 25% of Olin's engineering kids do a study um, away from the campus, often in Africa or in Europe, uh, occasionally in Asia. Rick, a, a couple other questions about the, the sort of founding. So, so with both the students and faculty, you really broke the mold. But at least by the titles, it looked like the administrative structure, the leadership, was more traditional in what you see in, in, in colleges. Did you consider at that point whether you needed to have each of those functions filled? Was that something in terms of who you brought into those that looks different from, from other higher ed institutions? We did. Uh, it's actually a major uh, project now, uh, 20 years later, in thinking about this mismatch between the traditional departmental sort of structure that the administrative side of the house has versus the very fluid interdisciplinary structure of the academic side. Um, it causes, uh, I think, a loss in, in impedance, we call it, uh, a loss in a matching of of ideas and, and style and uh, eventually performance as a result of it. Um, it wasn't, um, it would not have been possible to do it any other way in the first couple of years. Um, part of it is because of the 
the um, ex exceedingly difficult challenge of trying to get too much done in too little time. Let me explain. This is this is this shouldn't be hard. Um, if you can decide where you're going to have lunch, it's a decision you have to be make by 11:30, so we'll know where we're going. How do you make that decision? If you have a person whose job it is to declare where we're going to go have lunch, you can do this very efficiently, right? They can decide if there's a reservation available, if it's big enough, and we're done. If you do it without a structure or a person who's assigned responsibility to do that in this very um, uh, collaborative way, which is what happens at Olin, here's how you would do. You would get uh, all 20 of us together. Um, you would put us in teams of five in a table. You give them sticky notes and you tell them to use the process of design thinking to brainstorm about where we should eat. And like by dinner time, you would have an answer um, that would probably you'd not be very be, hungry. <laughs> yes. It's a pragmatic, pragmatic thing. And in the very beginning, we put uh, most of our energy into getting the curriculum structure right. So we, we needed to do that. The um, finance and administration was, was constantly a challenge um, with budgets, with um, legal issues along the way. And we had a very efficient uh, and very experienced um, CFO and head of administrative uh, lead at the school. I, we could not have made it without him. But um, there was a limit to how much creativity he could absorb with, with the structure of his team. Now that we are 20 years in, um, uh, there are very vocal efforts right now underway. I mean, I'm not there, so I'm not close to them, about how we can uh, better integrate. And in, actually, in the last few years, we had some um, groundbreaking efforts to make this happen. So, for example, when we do budgets at Olin, which is often a very telling cultural pattern. I'm sure you would understand that. Um, we don't set budgets individually in isolation with meetings one at a time with the different leaders. Budgets are set, or at least they were set until I stepped away. I'm not sure what they're doing now, but um, we did this as a group. So everyone's budget proposal was re reviewed by everyone else, and all the contingencies were held centrally. So uh, you don't pad your budget with just in case things, in case this doesn't go wrong. And we'll handle that centrally. This is what you think you'll need and what you'll do. And then this incentivizes cooperation. Uh, you can get, actually get more done if part of what you're going to do, David, is complementary to part of what I'm going to do. So why don't we do this together? So let's go have lunch and talk about it. Builds a culture of collaboration. The other thing we did, um, we had a faculty member who made this happen. I was just amazed at her. Um, we realized that it's much easier to get things done if the mission of the school about building young transformative educational patterns for young lives and understanding what engineering is about. We talk a lot about design thinking at Olin. Well, what is design thinking? The staff in the, in the finance office don't, don't know what we're doing. Why not? <clears throat> Why don't we bring them in? So we have uh, classes designated every semester with visitation days. And anybody on campus is welcome to sit in the back of the room and observe how one of our faculty members teaches identity, agency, and purpose in psychology, or another one teaches project design with uh, human-centered engineering in a, in a nursing home. Um, and what this is designed to do 
is to have them all feel that they don't have a job at Olin. They have a cause. <clears throat> and it's not a, you know, you don't, you're not working on an assembly line for a Model T where you put, you know, bolts on a wheel every day. Um, you're working in a fluid environment to create something new every day. Um, and you're on a first name basis with every faculty member. The school's small enough you can pull this off. That's really the bottom line. I don't think you could do this at Ohio State. But um, that's kind of the culture ideal that we're working on. Of course, that's recently, to, go ahead. Yeah, just a couple more questions because <laughs> I, I know I've kept you a long time. Well, you mentioned a, as the the design, it's not easy to build an entire campus from scratch, much less when you don't have the faculty and the students there that it's designed for. What what did Olin get right in that exercise? And what were the things when you looked back and once people were using it all, you said, oh, I, I wish we would have done it that way. They don't have time for that conversation. Oh, okay, um, sorry. <laughs> we learned a ton. Let me just give you the tip of the iceberg here, things that we did wrong. Um, and, and some of this, I've now been visited, Olin has been visited by 800 universities from 50 plus countries in the last 10 years. Many of them are starting a new school. So we go through the same conversation with them. But just back to that design of the campus again. Um, if you think of starting a school, starting a university, like a big buffet dinner, different dishes that you're going to offer have a different preparation time, right? But they all have the same ending time. So because you know when the guests are going to arrive. So you need to put the roast on like at two in the afternoon, but you don't need to do the salad until six at night. Uh, the, the roast, the longest preparation time piece of starting a new campus is the buildings. Uh, turns out you've got to get permits. You've got to talk to the architects and construction takes a long time. And there's always delays in construction that you couldn't have figured out. I told you about one of them. Yeah. So um, that happens to require the architect to make the most fundamental decisions about lab space that you need, the, uh, the organization of the offices, before you have anybody to talk to. And they're basing it on a guess. We talked about this with Jim Eifert and his good efforts to try and get it right. And then you actually bring the right people here just before you open the campus. And they say, why in the world did you build a hydraulics lab there? Nobody here uses hydraulics. Um, oh, and Olin has what? 25 to 35 design-based team projects, and you only have two rooms to do that in, when half the curriculum is based on that? Why don't we have half of these rooms building as design things? You know, we didn't think of it. And of course, there's the shops. Um, if It's very fabrication heavy, what we do. And the building that was supposed to hold the shops in the original campus master plan was never built because we ran into budget issues and change in plans in midstream and the campus was originally conceived to hold 650 students, but instead we built a campus that has half that. It's about 330. So, um, so we couldn't justify building the new building, which means that we had to cannibalize what was intended to be high-end classroom space and put machines in there. Um, and so, yeah. And the other thing was the architects, um, who were good people, they were doing what we told them to do, um, they built a very attractive campus, a very modern campus with a lot of glass, um, but with single-loaded corridors. And if you know anything about campus design, single-loaded corridors uh, waste a lot of space, sort of bottom line. 
Um, so it's very attractive. It would look great on the cover of Architecture Digest, but it doesn't actually support the curriculum that we have. So the real awkward thing is that you think the Olin Foundation, when we cut the ribbon on the day that we walk in, and we say, and now we need about, you know, $5 million in renovation expense because we have to convert this into something completely different. Um, they're not exactly pleased with that along the way. But that's an unavoidable thing. That's what happens when you start with a blank sheet. You don't know what you don't know, and you have to create new um, ideas before you can figure it out. So, the, if, so by the you, way, the, the solution to this is pretty yeah. simple. Flexibility. Talk to yeah. the architect. Put all the structural walls on the outer perimeter. So if you have to remove walls around on the inside, it's not a big crisis. Put and design every space as if it needs to have um, clean room uh, and fluid mechanics uh, hardware, like a, a biology lab. Yeah. Um, and then what you should do is um, put chases, which basically in architecture speak, that's a hole on the inside of the wall that you could put a pipe through uh, so that you could install the air handling condition for, um, for eliminating hazardous waste or hazardous gases to the ceiling uh, without having to rebuild the building. It costs a little more because you can't explain why you need it. Trust me, you'll need it. Uh, just build it. So, so I just wanted to conclude this section by, by asking about something you'd referred to Joe Platt as advice when you were first starting, yes. which is you built this incredibly innovative model. You, you've hired these innovative faculty and students, but the, the natural tendency to become conservative to protect what you have. And you already, I think, alluded to an element of that, which was originally you were thinking, you know, global mindset, then 9-11 happens. And by the time you can get back to that, you've already made it hard for people to, to leave. How have you approached, how did you approach keeping it fresh over these 20 years and, and trying to ensure that it wasn't just innovative at its time, but that it, that it sustains that over time? Very good question. It's a very difficult set of problems. And I think they're central problems. They're ones that are close to the heartbeat of the institution. So, I mean, there were some principles, some um, policy issues that we addressed right at the beginning, one of which was everything has an expiration date. Uh, that's the mindset we want you to have. Don't fall in love with it. Uh, we are likely to change it, uh, and pretty frequently. Um, that sort of worked. I mean, the, the very first iteration, it worked really well uh, in that the mindset that I was looking for turned out fine. Um, but they found out it's hard to do that, um, particularly if you're going to actually let go and think about starting from a complete blank sheet all over again. I mean, do you need calculus? Is that what we're talking? Or is it how we teach calculus that you want to change? Um, and they kind of, they, the faculty, kind of shied away from the idea of a complete redesign and sort of thought of it as uh, continuous renovation, okay? And I think that's still good. It's a good outcome. It's not quite as bold as we had before. The real, the hard part for me when I finally, uh, and I think you'll understand this as a, as a university president, you, there are no guarantees. There's nothing you can do that would guarantee that the place doesn't become uh, stagnant in its view. Um, and it depends on the people that you bring in. Uh, change doesn't happen unless there's a champion inside 
who really is effective and has a great vision. And unless you have a series of champions at different ages that come in at different phases, and there's sort of an engine that produces this vision and this ambition that comes in, it will definitely plateau at some point. You can try to fix it. Uh, You can write down, uh, you know, we're going to have um, an expiration date on everything. Um, Yeah, they'll forget even who I am. I mean, when that's written, who cares what he thought? You know, it's my college now because I live here. Um, that that words don't do it. It has to be uh, the people who care about it. So the real trick is your your uh, process for identifying and bringing in the people who will change the world. And we view it uh, to me as it's a motivational thing. Um, we're lucky enough where we are and with the history we've got to have very talented faculty to pick from. Uh, the question is, of all the very talented ones, which ones do you need? And for me, it's those people who have the passion to um, build the engine that will create the, the technology leaders of the world. Um, not necessarily engineers. This is not about credentials. Um, these are about people who, who, what? Envision what has never been and do whatever it takes to make a better world. And it becomes a cause, not a job. Uh, they become zealots, as if they were religious evangelicals of some kind. Um, it becomes kind of a cult uh, of people who are dedicated to this. And you can do things with that culture that Harvard or Berkeley could never do. You also could lose it in a heartbeat if yeah. the group gets off on a tangent, because there's not. This is like a a motorboat with 500 horsepower motor, but no rudder. So it's a little difficult. I'm not worried about it. I don't want to convene that mission. But but from a a leadership and management point of view, uh, the board constantly gets frustrated because they'll tell me, where is it going, Rick? What is it going to be doing in five years? And I have to say, beats me. I have to go look in the windows (laughs) and watch the faculty, and I'll come back and tell you. Um, But can't you just tell them what you're going to do? Well, you could, but they no, nobody will care what they do in that case because it has to be their passion. That's how you get excellent work. That's great. Rick, thank you so much. This has been incredibly enlightening. Really appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, it's so good to see you, David. <laughs>